Chapter Seven, Part Two, of the Eight Strokes of the Clock. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lenny. The Eight Strokes of the Clock by Maurice Leblanc, Chapter Seven, Part Two. A few minutes later. A sound of voices rose from the other side of the house, no doubt near the well. The sound grew more distinct. A number of people flocked into the house. Some of them went upstairs to the first floor, while the sergeant arrived with a young man of whom Renin and Hortense were able to distinguish only the tall figure. Jérôme Vignal, said she. Yes, said Renin. They are examining Madame de Gorne first, upstairs in her bedroom. A quarter of an hour passed. Then the persons on the first floor came downstairs and went in. They were the procurator's deputy, his clerk, a commissary of police, and two detectives. Madame de Gorne was shown in, and the deputy asked Jérôme Vignal to step forward. Jérôme Vignal's face was certainly that of the strong man whom Hortense had depicted in her letter. He displayed no uneasiness but rather a decision and a resolute will. Nathalie, who was short and very slight, with a feverish light in her eyes, nevertheless produced the same impression of quiet confidence. The deputy, who was examining the disordered furniture and the traces of the struggle, invited her to sit down, and said to Jérôme, "'Monsieur, I have not asked you many questions so far. This is a summary inquiry which I am conducting in your presence,' and which will be continued later by the examining magistrate. And I wished, above all, to explain to you the very serious reasons for which I asked you to interrupt your journey and to come back here with Madame de Gorne. You are now in a position to refute the truly distressing charges that are hanging over you. I therefore ask you to tell me the exact truth. Mr. Deputy, replied Jérôme, the charges in question trouble me very little. The truth for which you are asking will defeat all the lies which chance has accumulated against me. It is this. He reflected for an instant, and then, in clear, frank tones, said, I love Madame de Gorne. The first time I met her, I conceived the greatest sympathy and admiration for her. But my affection has always been directed by the sole thought of her happiness. I love her, but I respect her even more. Madame de Gorne must have told you, and I tell you again, that she and I exchanged our first few words last night. He continued in a lower voice. I respect her the more, inasmuch as she is exceedingly unhappy. All the world knows that every minute of her life was a martyrdom. Her husband persecuted her with ferocious hatred and frantic jealousy. Ask the servants. They will tell you of the long-suffering of Nathalie de Gorne of the blows which she received, and the insults which she had to endure. I tried to stop this torture by restoring to the rights of appeal which the merest stranger may claim when unhappiness and injustice pass a certain limit. I went three times to old Gorn and begged him to interfere, but I found in him an almost equal hatred towards his daughter-in-law, the hatred which many people feel for anything beautiful and noble. At last, I resolved on direct action, and last night I took a step with regard to Matthias de Gorne, which was 
a little unusual, I admit, but which seemed likely to succeed, considering the man's character. I swear, Mr. Deputy, that I had no other intention than to talk to Matthias de Gorn. Knowing certain particulars of his life, which enabled me to bring effective pressure to bear upon him, I wished to make use of this advantage in order to achieve my purpose. If things turned out differently, I am not wholly to blame. So I went there a little before nine o'clock. The servants I knew were out. He opened the door himself. He was alone. Monsieur, said the deputy, interrupting him, you are saying something, as Madame de Gorne, for that matter, did just now, which is manifestly opposed to the truth. Mathias de Gorne did not come home last night until eleven o'clock. We have two definite proofs of this, his father's evidence, and the prints of his feet in the snow, which fell from a quarter past nine o'clock to eleven. Mr. Deputy, Jérôme Vignal declared, without heeding the bad effect which his obstinacy was producing. I'm relating things as they were, and not as they may be interpreted. But to continue. That clock marked ten minutes to nine when I entered this room. Monsieur de Gorne, believing that he was about to be attacked, had taken down his gun. I placed my revolver on the table, out of reach of my hand, and sat down. I want to speak to you, monsieur, I said. Please listen to me. He did not stir, and did not utter a single syllable. So I spoke. And straightway, crudely, without any previous explanations which might have softened the bluntness of my proposal, I spoke the few words which I had prepared beforehand. I have spent some months, monsieur, I said, in making careful inquiries into your financial position. You have mortgaged every foot of your land. You have signed bills which will shortly be falling due and which it will be absolutely impossible for you to honour. You have nothing to hope for from your father, whose own affairs are in a very bad condition. So you are ruined. I have come to save you. He watched me, still without speaking, and sat down, which I took to mean that my suggestion was not entirely displeasing. Then I took a sheaf of banknotes from my pocket, placed it before him, and continued. Here is sixty thousand francs, monsieur. I will buy the manoir au puits, its lands and dependencies, and take over the mortgages. The sum named is exactly twice what they are worth. I saw his eyes glittering. He asked my conditions. Only one, I said, that you go to America. Mr. Deputy, we sat discussing for two hours. It was not that my offer roused his indignation. I should not have risked it if I had not known with whom I was dealing. But he wanted more, and haggled greedily, though he refrained from mentioning the name of Madame de Gorne, to whom I myself had not once alluded. We might have been two men engaged in a dispute and seeking an agreement on common ground, whereas it was the happiness and the whole destiny of a woman that were at stake. At last, weary of the discussion, I accepted a compromise, and we came to terms, which I resolved to make definite then and there. Two letters were exchanged between us, one in which he made the manoir au over to me for the sum which I had paid him, and one which he pocketed immediately, by which I was to send him as much more in America on the day on which the decree of divorce was pronounced. So the affair was settled. I am sure that, at that moment, he was accepting in good faith. He looked upon me less as an enemy and a rival than as a man who was doing him a service. 
He even went so far as to give me the key of the little door, which opens on the fields, so that I might go home by the shortcut. Unfortunately, while I was picking up my cap and greatcoat, I made the mistake of leaving on the table the letter of sale which he had signed. In a moment, Matthias de Gorn had seen the advantage which he could take of my slip. He could keep his property, keep his wife, and keep the money. Quick as lightning, he tucked away the paper, hit me over the head with the butt-end of his gun, threw the gun on the floor and seized me by the throat with both hands. He had reckoned without his host. I was the stronger of the two, and after a sharp but short struggle, I mastered him and tied him up with a cord which I found lying in a corner. Mr. Deputy, if my enemy's resolve was sudden, mine was no less so. Since, when all was said, he had accepted the bargain, I would force him to keep it, at least in so far as I was interested. A very few steps brought me to the first floor. I had not a doubt that Madame de Gorne was there, and had heard the sound of our discussion. Switching on the lights of my pocket-torch, I looked into three bedrooms. The fourth was locked. I knocked at the door. There was no reply. But this was one of the moments in which a man allows no obstacle to stand in his way. I had seen a hammer in one of the rooms. I picked it up and smashed in the door. Yes, Natalie was lying there on the floor, in a dead faint, I took her in my arms, carried her downstairs, and went through the kitchen. On seeing the snow outside, I at once realized that my footprints would be easily traced. But what did it matter? Was there any reason why I should put Matthias de Gorn off the scent? Not at all. With the sixty thousand francs in his possession, as well as the paper in which I undertook to pay him a like sum on the day of his divorce, to say nothing of his house and land, he would go away, leaving Natalie de Gorn to me. Nothing was changed between us, except one thing. Instead of awaiting his good pleasure, I had at once seized the precious pledge which I coveted. What I feared, therefore, was not so much any subsequent attack on the part of Matthias de Gorn, but rather the indignant reproaches of his wife. What would she say when she realized that she was a prisoner in my hands? The reasons why I escaped reproach Madame de Gorn has, I believe, had the frankness to tell you. Love calls forth love. That night in my house, broken by emotion, she confessed her feeling for me. She loved me as I loved her. Our destinies were henceforth mingled. She and I set out at five o'clock this morning, not foreseeing for an instant that we were amenable to the law. Jérôme Vignal's story was finished. He had told it straight off the reel, like a story learned by heart, and incapable of revision in any detail. There was a brief pause, during which Hortense whispered, It all sounds quite possible, and in any case very logical. There are the objections to come, said Renin. Wait till you hear them. They are very serious. There is one in particular. The deputy procurator stated it at once. And what became of Monsieur de Gorne in all this? Mathias de Gorne? asked Jérôme. Yes, you have related, with an accent of great sincerity, a series of facts which I am quite willing to admit. Unfortunately, you have forgotten a point of the first importance. What became of Matthias de Gorn? You tied him up here in this room. Well, this morning he was gone. Of course, Mr. Deputy. Matthias de Gorn accepted the bargain in the end and went away. By what road? No doubt by the road that leads to his father's house. Where are his footprints? The expense of snow is an impartial witness. After your fight with him, we see you, on the snow, moving away. Why don't we see him? He came, and did not go away again. 
Where is he? There's not a trace of him. Or rather... The deputy lowered his voice. Or rather, yes, there are some traces on the way to the well, and around the well. Traces which prove that the last struggle of all took place there. And after that, there is nothing. Not a thing. Jérôme shrugged his shoulders. You have already mentioned this, Mr. Deputy, and it implies a charge of homicide against me. I have nothing to say to it. Have you anything to say to the fact that your revolver was picked up within fifteen yards of the well? No. Or to the strange coincidence between the three shots heard in the night and the three cartridges missing from your revolver? No, Mr. Deputy, there was not, as you believe, a less struggle by the well, because I left Monsieur de Gorn tied up in this room, and because I also left my revolver here. On the other hand, if shots were heard, they were not fired by me. A casual coincidence, therefore? That's a matter for the police to explain. My only duty is to tell the truth, and you are not entitled to ask more of me. And if that truth conflicts with the facts observed, it means that the facts are wrong, Mr. Deputy. As you please, but until the day when the police are able to make them agree with your statements, you will understand that I am obliged to keep you under arrest. And Madame de Gorne asked Jérôme, greatly distressed. The deputy did not reply. He exchanged a few words with the commissary of police, and then, beckoning to a detective, ordered him to bring up one of the two motor-cars. Then he turned to Nathalie. Madame, you have heard Monsieur Vignal's evidence. It agrees word for word with your own. Monsieur Vignal declares in particular that you had fainted when he carried you away. But did you remain unconscious all the way? It seemed as though Jérôme's composure had increased Madame de Gorne's assurance. She replied, I did not come to, monsieur, until I was at the chateau. It's most extraordinary. Didn't you hear the three shots, which were heard by almost everyone in the village? I did not. And did you see nothing of what happened beside the well? Nothing did happen. Monsieur Vignol has told you so. Then what has become of your husband? I don't know. Come, madame, you really must assist the officers of the law, and at least tell us what you think. Do you believe that there may have been an accident, and that possibly Monsieur de Gorn, who had been to see his father and had more to drink than usual, lost his balance and fell into the well? When my husband came back from seeing his father, he was not in the least intoxicated. His father, however, has stated that he was. His father and he had drunk two or three bottles of wine. His father is not telling the truth. But the snow tells the truth, madam, said the deputy, irritably and the line of his footprints wavers from side to side. My husband came in at half-past eight, monsieur, before the snow had begun to fall. The deputy struck the table with his fist. But really, madame, you're going right against the evidence. That sheet of snow cannot speak false. I may accept your denial of matters that cannot be verified, but these footprints in the snow, in the snow! He controlled himself. The motor-car drew up outside the windows. Forming a sudden resolve, he said to Nathalie, "'You will be good enough to hold yourself at the disposal of the authorities, madame, and to remain here in the manor-house.' And he made a sign to the sergeant to remove Jérôme Vignal in the car. The game was lost for the two lovers. Barely united, they had to separate and to fight, far away from each other, against the most grievous accusations. Jérôme took a step towards Nathalie. They exchanged a long, sorrowful look. Then he bowed to her and walked to the door, in the wake of the sergeant of gendarmes.
Halt! cried a voice. Sergeant, right about, turn. Jérôme Vignal, stay where you are. The ruffled deputy raised his head, as did the other people present. The voice came from the ceiling. The bullseye window had opened, and Renin, leaning through it, was waving his arms. I wish to be heard. I have several remarks to make, especially in respect of the zigzag footprints. It all lies in that. Matthias had not been drinking. He had turned round and put his two legs through the opening, saying to Hortense, who tried to prevent him, Don't move. No one will disturb you. And, releasing his hold, he dropped into the room. The deputy appeared dumbfounded. But really, monsieur, who are you? Where do you come from? Renin brushed the dust from his clothes and replied, Excuse me, Mr. Deputy, I ought to have come the same way as everybody else, but I was in a hurry. Besides, if I had come in by the door instead of falling from the ceiling, my words would not have made the same impression. The infuriated deputy advanced to meet him. Who are you? Prince Renin, I was with the sergeant this morning when he was pursuing his investigations, wasn't I, sergeant? Since then I have been hunting about for information. That's why, wishing to be present at the hearing, I found a corner in a little private room. You were there. You had the audacity. One must need be audacious when the truth's at stake. If I had not been there, I should not have discovered just the one little clue which I missed. I should not have known that Matthias de Gaon was not the least bit drunk. Now, that's the key to the riddle. When we know that, we know the solution. The deputy found himself in a rather ridiculous position. Since he had failed to take the necessary precautions to ensure the secrecy of his inquiry, it was difficult for him to take any steps against the interloper. He growled. Let's have done with this. What are you asking? A few minutes of your attention? And with what object? To establish the innocence of Monsieur Vignal and Madame de Gorn. He was wearing that calm air, that sort of indifferent look, which was peculiar to him in moments of action, when the crisis of the drama depended solely upon himself. Hortense felt a thrill pass through her, and at once became full of confidence. They're saved, she thought with sudden emotion. I ask him to protect that young creature, and he's saving her from prison and despair. Jérôme and Nathalie must have experienced the same impression of sudden hope, for they had drawn nearer to each other, as though this stranger, descended from the clouds, had already given them the right to clasp hands. The deputy shrugged his shoulders. The prosecution will have every means, when the time comes, of establishing their innocence for itself. You will be called. It would be better to establish it here and now. Any delay might lead to grievous consequences. I happen to be in a hurry. Two or three minutes will do. Two or three minutes to explain a case like this. No longer, I assure you. Are you as certain of it as all that? I am now. I have been thinking hard since this morning. The deputy realized that this was one of those gentry who stick to you like a leech, and that there was nothing for it but to submit. In a rather bantering tone, he asked, Does your thinking enable you to tell us the exact spot where Monsieur Mathias de Gaon is at the moment? Renin took out his watch and answered, In Paris, Mr. Deputy. In Paris? Alive, then? Alive, and, what is more, in the pink of health. I'm delighted to hear it. But then what's the meaning of the footprints around the well, and the presence of that revolver, and those three shots? Simply camouflage. Oh, really, camouflage contrived by whom? By Matthias de Gorn himself. That's curious. And with what object? With the object of passing himself off for dead, 
and of arranging subsequent matters in such a way that Monsieur Vignal was bound to be accused of the death, the murder. An ingenious theory, the deputy agreed, still in a satirical tone. What do you think of it, Monsieur Vignal? It is a theory which flashed through my own mind, Mr. Deputy, replied Jerome. It is quite likely that, after our struggle, and after I had gone, Mathias de Gaunt conceived a new plan by which, this time, his hatred would be fully gratified. He both loved and detested his wife. He held me in the greatest loathing. This must be his revenge. His revenge would cost him dear, considering that, according to your statement, Mathias de Gaunt was to receive a second sum of sixty thousand francs from you. He would receive that sum in another quarter, Mr. Deputy. My examination of the financial position of the de Gaunt family revealed to me the fact that the father and son had taken out a life insurance policy in each other's favor. With the son dead, or passing for dead, the father would receive the insurance money and indemnify his son. "'You mean to say,' asked the deputy with a smile, "'that in all this camouflage, as you call it, Monsieur de Gaulle, the elder, would act as his son's accomplice?' Renin took up the challenge. "'Just so, Mr. Deputy. The father and son are accomplices.' Then we shall find the son at the father's? You would have found him there last night. What became of him? He took the train at Pompignat. That's a mere supposition. No, a certainty. A moral certainty, perhaps, but you'll admit there's not the slightest proof. The deputy did not wait for a reply. He considered that he had displayed an excessive goodwill, and that patience has its limits, and he put an end to the interview. Not the slightest proof, he repeated, taking up his hat. And, above all, above all, there's nothing in what you've said that can contradict, in the very least, the evidence of that relentless witness, the snow. To go to his father, Matthias de Gaunt must have left this house. Which way did he go? Hang it all, Monsieur Vignal told you, by the road which leads from here to his father's. There are no tracks in the snow. Yes, there are. But they show him coming here, and not going away from here. It's the same thing. What? Of course it is. There's more than one way of walking. One doesn't always go ahead by following one's nose. In what other way can one go ahead? By walking backwards, Mr. Deputy. These few words, spoken very simply, but in a clear tone, which gave full value to every syllable, produced a profound silence. Those present at once grasped their extreme significance, and, by adapting it to the actual happenings, perceived in a flash the impenetrable truth, which suddenly appeared to be the most natural thing in the world. Renin continued his argument. Stepping backwards in the direction of the window, he said, "'If I want to get to that window, I can of course walk straight up to it, but I can just as easily turn my back to it and walk that way. In either case I reach my goal.' Here's the gist of it all. At half-past eight, before the snow fell, Monsieur de Gohan comes home from his father's house. Monsieur Vignal arrives twenty minutes later. There's a long discussion and a struggle, taking up three hours in all. It is then, after Monsieur Vignal has carried off Madame de Gohan and made his escape, that Mathias de Gohan, foaming at the mouth, wild with rage, but suddenly seeing his chance of taking the most terrible revenge, hits upon the ingenious idea of using against his enemy the very snowfall upon whose evidence you are now relying. He therefore plans his own murder, or rather the appearance of his murder, 
and of his fall to the bottom of the well, and makes off backwards, step by step, thus recording his arrival instead of his departure on the white page. The deputy sneered no longer. This eccentric intruder suddenly appeared to him in the light of a person worthy of attention, whom it would not do to make fun of, he asked. And how could he have left his father's house? In a trap, quite simply. Who drove it? The father. This morning the sergeant and I saw the trap and spoke to the father, who was going to market as usual. The son was hidden under the tilt. He took the train at Pompignat, and is in Paris by now. Renin's explanation, as promised, had taken hardly five minutes. He had based it solely on logic and the probabilities of the case. And yet not a jot was left of the distressing mystery in which they were floundering. The darkness was dispelled. The whole truth appeared. Madame de Gaunt wept for joy, and Jérôme Vignal thanked the good genius who was changing the course of events with a stroke of his magic wand. "'Shall we examine those footprints together, Mr. Deputy?' asked Renin. "'Do you mind?' The mistake which the sergeant and I made this morning was to investigate only the footprints left by the alleged murderer, and to neglect Matthias de Gorn's. Why indeed should they have attracted our attention? Yet it was precisely there that the crux of the whole affair was to be found. They stepped into the orchard and went to the well. It did not need a long examination to observe that many of the footprints were awkward, hesitating, too deeply sunk at the heel and toe and deferring from one another in the angle at which the feet were turned. This clumsiness was unavoidable, said Renin. Matthias de Gorn would have needed a regular apprenticeship before his backward progress could have equaled his ordinary gait. And both his father and he must have been aware of this, at least as regards the zigzags which you see here, since old de Gorn went out of his way to tell the sergeant that his son had had too much drink. And he added, Indeed, it was the detection of this falsehood that suddenly enlightened me. When Madame de Gorn stated that her husband was not drunk, I thought of the footprints, and guessed the truth. The deputy frankly accepted his part in the matter, and began to laugh. There's nothing left for it but to send detectives after the bogus corpse. On what grounds, Mr. Deputy? asked Renin. Matthias de Gorn has committed no offence against the law. There's nothing criminal in trampling the soil around the well in shifting the position of a revolver that doesn't belong to you, in firing three shots, or in walking backwards to one's father's house. What can we ask of him? The sixty thousand francs? I presume that this is not Monsieur Vignal's intention, and that he does not mean to bring a charge against him? Certainly not, said Jérôme. Well, what then? The insurance policy in favor of the survivor? But there would be no misdemeanor unless the father claimed payment. And I should be greatly surprised if he did. Hello, here the old chap is. You'll soon know all about it. Old de Gorn was coming along, gesticulating as he walked. His easy-going features were screwed up to express sorrow and anger. Where's my son? he cried. It seems the brutes killed him. My poor Matthias, dead. Oh, that scoundrel of a vignal! And he shook his fist at Jérôme. The deputy said, bluntly, A word with you, Monsieur de Gorn. Do you intend to claim your rights under a certain insurance policy? Well, what do you think? said the old man off his guard. The fact is, your son's not dead. People are even saying that you were a partner in his little schemes, and that you stuffed him under the tilt of your trap and drove him to the station. The old fellow spat on the ground, stretched out his hand as though he were going to take a solemn oath. 
stood for an instant without moving, and then, suddenly, changing his mind and his tactics with ingenious cynicism, he relaxed his features, assumed a conciliatory attitude, and burst out laughing. "'That blackguard, Matthias! So he tried to pass himself off as dead! What a rascal! And he reckoned on me to collect the insurance money and send it to him? As if I should be capable of such a low, dirty trick! You don't know me, my boy!' And, without waiting for more, shaking with merriment like a jolly old fellow amused by a funny story, he took his departure, not forgetting, however, to set his great hobnail boots on each of the compromising footprints which his son had left behind him. Later, when Henin went back to the manor to let Hortense out, he found that she had disappeared. He called and asked for her at her cousin Hermeline's. Hortense sent down word, asking him to excuse her. She was feeling a little tired and was lying down. Capital, thought Renine. Capital. She avoids me. Therefore, she loves me. The end is not far off. End of chapter 7, part 2